The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the Rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last time, the story here of the fall. Let's look at verse 1 together. Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said, here you go. Everybody look at Chris. Look at verse 13 now. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we desperately need to hear from you this morning. 
because we, as we've seen over the last few Sundays, are a people still afflicted by sin. And we have not yet had the opportunity to learn what you think of this. We've spent three or four weeks now examining what Adam and Eve have done, how they acted, the reasons behind their actions. And all we've seen is terrible, ugly things. But today, we encounter you. Today, we're going to see how you respond to sin. And so, Lord, I pray that through the text this morning, the Spirit will take your word and will pierce our hearts with this truth. Lord, if there's anyone in here today who does not know you as Savior, I I just pray right off the bat this morning that they will see their sin and see your response to it and will be struck by your amazing grace and love. For all of us in here, Lord, who continually struggle with sin, I just pray, Lord, that we will see how you respond to our first parents and will be encouraged by your great love for us. So that in the end, Lord, as we take this week and next and perhaps the week after to try to understand how you see sin and how you respond to it, that our understanding not just of sin, not even just of ourselves, but of you will grow as a result of this study. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing on our time this morning. We ask that your spirit be active here in Cornerstone today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are moving into the third section of our time here in Genesis 3. I'm putting it up behind me again just to keep reminding you of where we're at in this process along the way. Third section I've titled Revelation. And I chose uh, that word specifically because these next few verses, verses 8 through 13, are used by Moses to show us God, how God revealed sin uh, to Adam and Eve, the fact that they had rebelled against him back in verses 1 to 6. And while I still think that the word revelation here was a good word to use, the more I've been able to study this over the past several weeks, the more I've come to understand it better, I think. And I think that really I could have probably summed up the entire rest of the chapter under one word, and that was the word response. Because as you look at verses 8 to 24, what you're really seeing here is God's response to sin. And and this is one of those times, and I think you'll understand what I mean when I say this, This is one of those times where I almost wish that we had never read the story at all, ever, in the past. I I wish that we could be like sitting in an audience, similar to what you're doing right now, watching this unfold like a play or a drama before us. Because if we were watching this thing unfold like a play, we would realize that for the first two acts, the first two scenes, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God has been incredibly active. He was, in fact, the primary actor. He's the one who's speaking, he's the one who's doing, and everything that's happening is happening because of him. But starting in chapter 3, verse 1, God's been absent. It's it's like he exited the stage. He's been back behind the, the curtain, and we haven't seen him at all. Momentous events have been occurring in these first seven verses, and God has been nowhere to be seen. And so, if we were watching this for the very first time unfold before us as a drama, I think there's a very real sense in which we'd be sitting there at this point wondering, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen 
when God walks back out onto the stage? How is he going to respond? What, what is he going to do? Well, here we are going into to chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 8 of chapter 3, and we see now what God is going to do. Because in this point here, he walks back out onto the stage, and for the very first time in the story, we get to see God's response to sin. And so on the one hand, I could have labeled this whole section just one of response. However, I still think it was right to break it up like I did because you see God's response come in two distinct parts here in these verses. In verses 8 to 13, you see his initial response to sin is to reveal it. And so, you know, last week we saw that Adam and Eve's immediate response to sin is to cover it. So they make those fig leaf loincloths, that underwear, to cover themselves because they don't want God to see them exposed or for each other to see them exposed. No, they want to keep everything hidden and covered. And so it only kind of makes sense to me that God's first response to that is to uncover what they attempted to cover to expose what they attempted to hide. And so he just puts it right out there for everyone to see, including you and I as readers. He wants us to be confronted with the truth of their sin, and so he reveals it for us. And then after he's revealed the sin, well, then comes the the retribution and redemption that we'll see in the rest of the verses. That's the second part of God's response to sin. And so while all of this falls under one big umbrella of God's response to sin, We clearly see it displayed for us in two distinct parts here in the rest of the chapter. Now, obviously, today we're going to be looking at God's revelation of sin. How does God go about revealing what Adam and Eve have done? What what steps does he take? What does he do? And then how do Adam and Eve respond to him in the process? Because this is not just a one-way street yet. For these few verses here, Adam and Eve have some uh, back and forth with God over all the things that have occurred. And so let's look at these things as they unfold here together in the story before us. We'll start with God's first response. God's very first response, once he walks out back out onto the stage, is to come to man. He comes to them. And there was a very real part of me that wanted to change up the order of this story in terms of how I presented it this morning because I wanted to come to this one last. And and the reason I wanted to come to this part last was because I love it, I think, the most of everything we're going to see. But I decided not to do that. We're going to stick to Moses' order of events and see how things just unfold. Very first thing God does to respond to sin is to come to Adam and Eve. In verse 8, Moses says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day after having given them time to go and make those fig leaf loincloths and hide themselves, God now at this point steps back out onto the stage so that we can see what he's going to do. And Moses gives us a few details, but they're not super helpful in understanding the picture of what's going on. He says that Adam and Eve hear him. So God is making some kind of noise as he's doing this. He says that he's walking in the garden don't picture him like legs taking a stroll. Okay, he's not, he's not a man like us. He doesn't have a body like us. But it does mean that he's moving and present. And then there's this interesting little comment about it being the cool of the day. And that's a really, 
really hard phrase to translate because it's the only time this phrase ever shows up in our Old Testament, so we don't have anything to compare it to to get a better idea. It could be referring to a part of the day or a time of the day. That's how our ESV translators have done it. So it's the cool part of the day, the time when the cool breezes are blowing, whether morning or evening. Or it could refer to the manner in which God comes down. In other words, the wind of the day or a a stormy wind. Either way, whichever one it is, Adam and Eve hear God coming. He's coming down to them. And when I stop and think about that, that this is his initial response, that he would come to man, I realize that in this very first phrase of verse 8, we see the paradigm that will define all of God's response to sin from this point on until he brings this world to an end. This is, this is the pattern that we will see repeated over and over again, including God's final and ultimate response to sin. I mean, just, just think about the alternatives that were possible here for a moment. God could have, from heaven, without a word or a movement, simply obliterated them and everything that he had made. He could have destroyed the whole thing, whole kit and caboodle, without as much as a as much as a word from him. But he doesn't do that. He, he could have called Adam and Eve up to heaven and just sentenced them to judgment right then and there, just shown them his glory as he sat on the throne of his judgment and then sent them off to eternal damnation. He could have done that, but he didn't. He, he even could have just simply spoken to them from heaven, left them on earth, and done everything else that you see and read about here in the rest of this chapter, but just simply stayed distant from them. He, he chooses not even to do that. He chooses to come down to them. He makes it personal. And even though they apparently don't want to see him or for him to see them, because you get both ideas based on what they've done, God takes his own actions apart from man. And I love that. His first response to sin is to do the thing that man doesn't deserve at all. His first response to sin is to take action based on his own mercy, grace, love, and purpose, and not based on their actions, their choices, their decisions, nothing at all on their part. His first response to sin is to humble himself and come down to them because they won't come to him. Very first thing you see him doing. Don't tell me then that the God of the Old Testament or that salvation in the Old Testament is somehow different than what you see in the New Testament. Don't don't tell me that. Don't tell me that Yahweh, as Moses writes about him here in the Pentateuch, is some angry, wrath-filled God, while Jesus is some gracious, loving God, that the two are somehow different. That's a lie. Because what you see evidenced here in this very first response to sin is God coming to man. God is consistent throughout the Scriptures and throughout history in how He responds to us. He comes to us. That's His first response. Well, man has a response as well. Man hides from God. 
Moses says here that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, you remember previous to this, in the last verse, they they had already done something similar, right? In verse 7, they make themselves those loincloths to cover themselves. Both actions serve the same basic purpose, and that's the purpose of hiding. In verse 7, they don't want anyone else to see them, and so they cover themselves up so that they can't see each other theoretically, so that God can't see them. Well, here in verse 8, Moses makes it clear that they don't want to see God. Because notice that Moses points out that they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. And the word presence here in Hebrew is the word for face. They're hiding themselves from the face of God. They don't want to see Him. And Moses tells us why. Why do they cover themselves? Why do they hide? It's very simple. Because they're afraid. They're filled with fear here. If you look ahead to verse 10 at Adam's answer to God's question, you'll notice that he confesses this fear. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now that Adam realizes that he's exposed, he's not only overcome with shame, he's also overcome with fear as well, specifically fear of God and not the good kind. No, fear is now dominating what he does, and so he hides himself. And notice, notice ironically enough, where he chooses to hide. He chooses to hide behind God's provision. They use God's provision here to run run from him. He hides himself among the trees of the garden. These are the same trees that God had made in chapter 2. Every tree that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes, he gave to man in the garden for his care and provision. The very trees that God had made to care for man are now used against him so that they could hide from him. They use his provision to run and hide from God. And again, I would argue, as you think about man's response to God throughout history in our own lives and our own experience, do we not do the same thing? Has mankind not done the same thing that man uses God's provisions to hide from him? I'll give you three examples. Consider consider the gift of man's intellect, his intelligence, the ability to think and use logic and reason. Throughout history, man has used his intellect to create all kinds of arguments and reasons and logical deductions for why the truth of God isn't true. For for ages, man has done this. They they use their powers, their intellectual powers, to convince themselves that the very thing that is true isn't true. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul says it in Romans chapter 1. Never stopping to ask the question, who gave me the ability to think? Where does logic itself even come from? What is the foundation of intellect or intelligence in any sense? No, no, no. We don't want to think about those things. We'll simply use God's provision to hide from him so that we can reject him and ignore him and not have to be accountable to him. Uh, Another one, God gave man the ability to experience joy and pleasure, and we've used that to hide from him. God made us to need him. He made us to want him. He made us to want to have joy in him. But if we reject that, the desire for joy doesn't go away. The desire for pleasure and happiness doesn't change. It's just the source of it does. And so we attempt to cover those things with alcohol or drugs or sex or materialism or whatever. 
in an attempt to replace that joy and that happiness that God made us to have, we're simply using his provisions to hide from him. Because if maybe, maybe I can find enough joy in a bottle, maybe if I can find enough joy in all the things I buy, then I won't need the joy that rightly came from God in the first place. It's no different. Or number three, God made us in his image, and as such, many people, by human standards anyway, are kind, decent, good people. And so they use that opinion of themselves as they compare themselves with the the people around them and say, well, I'm a good person, I, I don't need God at all. Never again stopping to consider, what's my definition of good? And how do I even understand that definition against everybody else's definition? How do I understand why anyone is kind? Much less myself, why is anyone kind in this world to each other? They don't stop and understand that even in those acts, they are merely showcasing the fact that they are image bearers of God. And they still bear that image to some extent in the world in which they live. No, no, no. They just use his provision to hide from him. Do you see what I'm getting at? The response of man to God, though thousands of years have passed, it hasn't changed. God is willing to come to man But man, in his sinfulness, hides from God, doesn't want to see him, doesn't want to be in his presence. This is just how it is. These are the first two responses that you see here, and they're relevant to this day. Look at God's second response, because he's not done yet. He wants to come back and, and say some more. God's second response is that he speaks to man. The text here begins by saying that God called to man, where are you? Where are you? Adam, Eve, where are you? And and I pointed out when we went through this in our overview several, several weeks ago, that this question is not intended to gain information. In other words, when I walk into my house and I'm like, Jamie, where are you? I'm asking because I don't know. I, I need information and I'm hoping that my question will gather that. Okay, God, he's not asking this question to gain information. In that sense, it's a rhetorical question. He already knows the answer. And you can see that Adam understands this by the way he answers. He doesn't say, oh God, here I am, I'm I'm like 30 30 paces this way, to the left, under the ferns. You know, that's not how he answers. If he thinks that God wants his location, then he would have given his location. But he doesn't give his location, does he? Notice what he gives is an explanation as to why he's hiding in the first place. God's call isn't meant to locate him, It's meant to get a confession out of him, to expose him, and sure enough, that's what happens. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I mean, he just lays it all out there. I heard you, I was afraid, I'm naked, I hid. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what's going on. Here's why I'm under the ferns 30 feet in front of you on the left. You don't care about where I'm at, you're wanting to know why I'm here. Well, you see, God, his call here has exposed the sinner. Notice, secondly, that God confronts them. After he calls them, he confronts them. He says, who told you that you were naked? Who, who told you this? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I love how the, God doesn't beat around the bush at all in this story. He just goes right to the heart of the matter. It was their nakedness. It was the first thing they came to know after eating the fruit. It was their nakedness that they tried to cover with fig leaves. It was because of their nakedness that they become afraid. It was because of their nakedness that they go and hide themselves. It's because of their nakedness that, uh, it's their nakedness, excuse me, that Adam admits to right off the bat after God calls him. And so since the nakedness issue is front and center in all these other actions, 
What does God go for first? Who told you you were naked? Where, where did that come from? How, how did you learn this? And again, God is not attempting to elicit information from them. He knows how they know. He understands the details of what have transpired. He's trying to elicit a confession. And you can see that this is the point by that follow-up question there. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He's just clearing away the clutter. Let's just get right down to the nitty-gritty here. Did you do what I told you not to do? And this is one of those times... I'm certainly, I don't know Hebrew very well. You can ask anyone that went to school with me. But this is one of those times when being able to read it in the original crystallizes what God's point is with this question. Because literally the way it's written is this. Did you, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, eat? You say, I don't get the difference in the two questions. Well, it's easy. It's the difference of focus. What exactly is God asking about here? Is he simply asking about fruit? No, 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 no. He's not focusing his attention on the fruit. The emphasis is placed on whether or not Adam acted in a manner that was consistent with God's word and will. Did you do this? Did you obey? The fruit is merely the example at hand. The fruit is merely the manifestation of it, but it's not the main issue itself. The issue is whether or not man has obeyed God's word and will. And as I compare that to the New Testament, again, I see the exact same thing. I mean, this is exactly, to the T, what we saw Paul do in Romans 1-3. through Just, what, three weeks ago? Two weeks ago now? He takes chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and then about two-thirds, three-quarters of chapter 3, to go through this question of, have you done what God has told you to do? You're a Jew, do you keep the law? You're a Gentile, how do you live? How have you responded to God's word and will? And he goes through all of those things, and at the end of chapter 3, he simply says, or comes to the conclusion, that none is righteous, not even one. That no one does good, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All are turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The fact of the matter is, is that when God calls us and confronts us with himself and his truth, we are shown to be disobedient to the core, just, just like Adam. No different. Disobedient to what God has called us to. Thus Paul can say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then you see man's second response. It's that he speaks to God. And I wish, I so wish I could give you a better ending to these verses than than what I'm about to give you, but I can't. Because here in verses 12 to 13, both Adam and Eve make something painfully clear. And that is that their allegiance has changed. I mean, just in from the end of verse 6 to now, huge shifts have happened in their heart and mind. Notice the first way Adam responds here is by distorting truth. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And that statement, when you stop and think about it, you'll realize is deceptively true. That sound familiar? It's deceptively true. I mean, technically he's right. She's the one who handed the fruit to him. She did it. She's the one who is standing there, takes it off the tree and says, here, have one. 
She does all these things. But the implication that Adam is making here in the text is that she is at fault, not him. Well, it's not my fault. She did it. She gave it to me. Well, of course, we know now that that's not true at all, right? Because as we already saw in verses 1 through 6, where was Adam during all that time? Right there next to her. He's standing there listening to the serpent tell his lies. He stands there and he watches her grab the fruit and eat. And then he willingly chooses to eat along with her. He doesn't sound at all like God here, like an image bearer of God. But he does sound an awfully lot like Satan and his words. His words are deceptively true, just like the serpents. The serpent last time, you know, we saw this last time, he told the truth to them partially. If you eat, then your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. That wasn't a complete lie. That was true, partially. The only problem was that after they ate, they didn't exactly get what they expected, did they? And so here you see Adam doing exactly the same thing. His allegiance has changed. Eve, Eve I'm not so sure about. The text says that, or she says here in the text, that the serpent deceived her and that's why she ate. This may very well be true. God doesn't deny it, nor do the rest of the Scripture. So perhaps she's a bit more remorseful and being more honest about who she is and what she's done. I don't know. But regardless for Adam, he certainly looks and sounds way more like the serpent than an image bearer of God at this point. Notice that the next way he responds is by accusing God himself. Because even though that initial comment is placing blame on Eve, ultimately, who is he really placing the blame on? It's on the Lord whom you gave to be with me. You're the the reason I'm in this, God. If you had given me someone else or someone better or no one else at all, well, then, then clearly this wouldn't have happened. It's ultimately your fault. Eve's second, maybe I'm third, but there's a couple people before me that need to answer before it comes down to me. Again, he's simply doing what the serpent did. You'll not surely die. For God knows that on the day you eat of it, you will, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You can't trust him. You can't trust that what he says he will do, that his, his motivations are good and right. He's really not out for you. He really is trying to keep stuff back from you. All Satan is doing with those words is accusing God's goodness. Is Adam doing anything different here? Again, Adam sounds more like the serpent at this point than he does like an image bearer of God. Their response to God is not something here for us to cheer about. But, and we're certainly not comforted by these words, but you know what? We're informed by them. Because to this day, when people are confronted with their sin, with all the ways in which they have rebelled against God, isn't it true that they respond in the exact same ways? by distorting truth and accusing God. It's not my fault. I'm not really that bad of a person. Yes, you are. Why are you hiding from this? I know why, but they don't. It's, it's God's fault. He made, he made these things happen. He caused these circumstances in my life. He gave me this bad home and this and that. You may have had all those things. Why are you accusing God for your sin and for your failure? Nothing's really changed despite all these thousands of years. And yet... There's one other thing that stands out to me here. It's that in the end, both Adam and Eve finally admit their guilt before God. Adam may distort the truth and accuse God's character, but notice what his last two words are. I ate. 
And Eve, even though she was deceived perhaps, though she may have been tricked, her last two words are, I ate. In the end, both of them have to admit their guilt before the Lord. And when I noticed this, I immediately thought of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. That's the passage where, you know, we've talked about this before, where Paul is laying out the decision of Jesus to leave heaven's glory, to come to earth, humble himself, come to earth, die on the cross for our sins, come in the form of a man. You you remember the passage. And at the end of that explanation, he says why Jesus chose to do this. He chose to do it, or excuse me, what happens after he chose to do it, after he had chosen to do this, it says that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And notice he says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that doesn't mean that everyone's doing this willingly, nor that everyone who's doing it is saved. He's just simply acknowledging the fact that in the end, everybody, for whatever reason, will acknowledge that truth is truth. Just like Adam and Eve. In the end, they acknowledge it. For some people, some people, this will be the joyful culmination of their faith. The, the realization of everything that they have believed and placed their trust in, they will bow their knee and worship Christ as Lord and then enter His eternal presence to enjoy life with Him. And then for others, it'll be the final humbling act of submission before they enter eternal damnation. Either way, either way, in the end, everyone has to acknowledge truth once and for all. Period. And if you think about it for a moment, if you will use the logical minds that God has given you, part of his provision to you as an image bearer, you'll realize that this couldn't be any other way. I mean, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. I'm the only way. You may not like those words. You may not agree with them. But Jesus is not ambiguous. He's not unclear. He's very, very clear. I am the only way that you come to God, no other way except through me. And if those words are true, then what we read about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11, will have to be the truth. Every knee will have to bow. And every knee will confess that He is the Lord because this is what He's declared. If it's not true, then, you know, everything I've just said your whole reason for being here this morning, our church's reason for existing, it's all, it's all a waste. I'm not saying it's harmed us or it's like, you know, we've done something bad, but it's certainly been for nothing if his words aren't true. If he's not really the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, well, we've wasted our time. That's about it. But if they're true, then this is it. This is all there is. It's this way or no other. And one way or the other, in the end, every single person will acknowledge this truth for themselves in one manner or another. What I learn here in Genesis 3 from God's revelation of sin 
is that despite man's worthlessness, his hostility, his indifference, God doesn't want to leave man in that state. I was, he loves us too much. And I was reading uh, Bruce Waltke. He was talking about this passage, and he had a quote that I just thought was great. He says this, that the proof of love is the unwillingness of God to abandon the object of his love, even when love failed to achieve its desired end. Think about what he's saying for a moment. You want to see the real proof of love? Here it is. Is that even though Adam and Eve failed miserably, they didn't just fail as if they made a mistake, they rebelled rebelled actively against him. Even though this is the case, the proof of God's love is that he loves them still. The proof of God's love is that he takes the time to respond to them at all. That he doesn't just simply obliterate them on the spot. No, no, he doesn't leave them in this state. He comes to them. That's a real proof of love. And as I was thinking about this and and pondering it, I was like, wow, this, this is what we all need to understand. For the person who's not a believer in Jesus, all they see is their sin. All they can do is hide behind it in some way, shape, or form to try to avoid the face of God. But what you need to understand is that God loves you still. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, regardless of all these things, He's not coming to you this morning because you're worthy. He wouldn't ever for that reason because you'll never be worthy. He's not waiting for you to change, turn over a new leaf, get to a different stage of life. He comes to you now as you are, not because of who you are, but because of who He is. See, that's, that's the Gospel that he would come to you in that manner. And and guess what, believers? The same truth is true for us. Because many of you in this room this morning are very likely carrying the weight of sin on your shoulders, things you have done in the past that our enemy, that old serpent, the liar of, of ancient times, loves to bring up and rehash in your heart as much as he can. And you feel the weight of those things that you've done or things you are doing now. And you're like, this is too much. How can God love me? And you begin to doubt. Look at Genesis 3. God's love for you was never based on who you were or what you had done or how you're living now. It's never been about those things. From the the earliest days, from his very first response to sin, look at that and learn. It's never been about who you are. It has always and only been about who He is. So that when we read those famous words in John 3, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, He came down to man. That whoever believes on Him, places their trust in Him, in His Word, in His will, after God has called Him and confronted Him with His sin, whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. John 3 is no different than Genesis 3. It's the same. It's always been the same. It's always been about the grace of God freely shown to us. And as we sit here today, we see the ultimate example, God's final and ultimate response to sin, Jesus Christ hanging naked, ashamed on a cross for us. Why? Because you deserved it? No. Still don't. Never will. Ever. 
No matter how, how sanctified you become, however much you stop sinning, you will never on your best day deserve what Jesus has done for you. So why do you keep fighting the battle? Why do you keep struggling to be something that you can never be? God's not asked that of you. He's simply come and shown us, I love you. And the proof of my love is that I love you even when love has failed to achieve its desired end. This, folks, this is our hope and our joy this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are so tempted to constantly strive to deserve your love. To think that there are things we can do or not do that will somehow make us worthy of of your love, to make you want to love us. But the reality is, is we'll never be able to deserve it. We're sinners. We're rebels. We're criminals. You've made that clear. We see it. And yet, the gospel is that you love us still. You love us in spite of those things. You didn't come because of our works. You came because of your own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began, 2 Timothy 1. This is why you love us. Lord, for those in here this morning who don't know you as Savior, who continue their rebellion, trying to hide behind the provisions that you have made in their life, in their mind, in their their circumstances, whatever it may be, Lord, will your spirit take these words and shatter their resistance? Let them them have nothing left to hide behind. May they be exposed in their sinfulness before you. Confront them with the fact that they have disobeyed to the core. Then, Lord, would you show them your love? That that act, as painful as it may be, to be exposed before you, is the greatest act of love they'll ever know. As they can see for the first time the fact that your love is not based on their actions for good or evil. It's based on you and your character and your plan and your word. May they see the gospel, turn to it, believe in it, and live this morning for the first time. For those of us, Lord, who are believers and we have been exposed under the glare of your truth and we have turned to you as our only covering, the only thing we could ever possibly have, Lord, we still struggle with sin. And even more than we struggle with sin, we struggle with the belief that somehow it's all about us still, that we can be things or do things to make you love us or not love us. Lord, we are still living in the chains of the past, even though we've been set free. Will the truth that we see this morning in your initial response to sin, the fact that you loved us when we were completely unlovely, when you loved us while we were still sinners, will the truth of that hit us in a new and deep way this morning so that our hope and our trust and our faith and our joy and our hope is not based on ourselves but it's based on you alone. Because this is what gives us power. This is what takes away the enemy's arrows so that he can no longer pierce us over and over and over again with our failures. We have failed. We admit it. He has no more strength. You have defeated him. You have forgiven all our sins. Who is left to condemn? There's no one because you have forgiven us completely in Christ.
May that truth be the motivation behind the decisions we make each and every day, both today and for the rest of our lives. And Lord, I pray that you will continue to help us grow in our knowledge and understanding of how all the things we're seeing here, these aren't just stories accumulated over the years from people who, who died many, many, many years ago. This is the revelation of you. This is what we've learned today, not about what Adam and Eve said or, or what you said even, but we've learned about you, about your character, your nature, your plan, and the way you see us. May we not worship the scriptures. May we worship you and find you revealed in the scriptures. May we not, may we not worship a sermon or even an idea May our hearts be enamored with you and you alone. And as you use all these things to mold us and shape us and change us into the image of Jesus Christ, may our hearts be soft and pliable before you so that your spirit can do the work that he does with your word so that we will know you. This is what Jesus said. That this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. And so this morning, Father, we thank you for what we've seen of you. We praise your holy name. We, we thank you for your mercy and your love and your grace. And we ask that you will help us to live out the freedom that we have been given in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for these truths. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.